Um, I, if I can quote your own show, the line that really got me was episode one. Do you really want him to fuck you with this dick after it's been inside this crusty pussy? Yes. That line. Yes. Yes. And I swooned and I was like, I am just, I'm here for this so hard. So I'm, it, you have made my day and I really appreciate that. Um, this, the specificity of that line in particular tickles my heart to, to no extent, to know that that, that that stuck with you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Hello everyone, how are you doing? We have a super awesome special guest this week. Today we have Cody Heller. Cody is a writer slash producer slash showrunner slash badass who's worked on amazing shows like Wilfred on FX, Deadbeat on Hulu, Kidding on Showtime, and you can binge her new show Dummy on Quibi right now. Dummy is so fucking funny. It's a buddy comedy about a woman befriending her boyfriend's sex doll, starring Anna Kendrick and Meredith Hagner. I had so much fun hanging out with Cody. Hope you enjoy. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your writing journey. Talk about how this became. Actually, first of all, are you sick of answering the same questions over and over doing press? I haven't done that many interviews or whatnot, but I've done a fair amount to the point now where I'm like, fuck, I have, now I sound rehearsed because it's like, how did the idea come up? And I tell the same thing and I try to vary it a little bit, but I find myself being like, oh my God, that sounded like you've said it a million times. And I'm like, I get really in my head about it. So there was one recent podcast where I just sort of decided like, I just don't want to, I don't want to do it the same way. So I just started interviewing the guy instead. And we, we eventually talked about dummy and other stuff, but I just was like, yeah, cause it's a lot of the same, the same shit. Um, but all right, yeah. then let's but not, that, but, that, but that's a great, that's a great <laughs> question, Heather Ann. I love that question. Yeah. <laughs> then let's, uh, yeah, I was watch. I was sort of researching you and getting to know you and that's the first I followed you. I followed you on Instagram. Oh my already. God. Thank you. Follow for follow. You, oh yeah. You already followed me, right? Or is mm -hmm. that someone else? Oh, that, I followed you two years ago me, when Ari told me to follow you. That makes, that's, that makes me feel really special. Honestly, <laughs> it does. When I see that follow back thing come up, I'm like, oh my God, really? It's, it feels so rare. It feels like such a special gift of like, oh my God, I, I had this thing and I didn't even know it. I had this potential sitting before me this entire time. And now I press this button. But anyway, sorry to <laughs> interrupt you. I love it. Uh, um, we were just, I just wanted to talk about then, we, we can come back to the writing stuff at the end or whatever. Let's just get to know you as a person. And something I really loved about Dummy is the, the anxiety voice and the self-consciousness and you sort of, I know I struggle with anxiety. I know I, I've recently named the voice in my head Voldemort. Oh, okay. Which now okay. that I say it, JK Rowling is like, we yeah, maybe not. Him, but, you so know. maybe it's good to keep you, it like that because we have to hate it. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it kind of makes sense that it's an evil, you know, I mean, not just that the character is evil, but that the root of it is indeed more evil. It makes it even more meta in a way. Yeah. But I like that. Okay. And what I really loved about Dummy is you personifying this voice. And I wanted to ask you about your own journey with the own inner critic in your head. Yeah. I mean, I think most people, but especially women, can relate to this feeling of having this voice inside their own head that, you know, it, it, it comes up in, in various moments, but it's like you're looking in the mirror and it's that voice that says, you look like you've gained weight, you aren't pretty enough, your, your upper lip is too thin, you're not funny enough, you're not, you know, and so... A lot of it is, you know, it is the voice in my in my own head. Barbara, the sex doll, represents the, the voice in Cody, the character named after me, played by Anna Kendrick. Um, it is the voice in her own head. And it's sort of the journey of, like, learning to befriend that inner voice instead of resisting it and being frightened by it, of, like, confronting it. Yeah, I wanted to explore that and just the way that I talk to myself. And, and my therapist once was, like, I, I was just going on a 
tangent about how terrible I was and I am a terrible writer and I can't do deadlines and all these things I was saying. And she was like, Cody, would you say that self, would, would you say that stuff to young Cody? And I was like, no, of course not. And reframing it like that really got me sort of thinking about that. And look, I fail every day constantly at it, but I do try to uh, make friends with that inner critic voice that, that we all have. But I think especially as a writer, it's even more so a powerful force because so much of writing is getting over the fear of, of not being as good of a writer as you want to be. So that blank page thing, I think that so many writers can relate to is like your, you know, your taste is really high, but your skill level isn't as high as your taste level. It's that Ira Glass thing. And it's like, you start writing and you're scared of it not being good enough. So you put it off and you put it off and you put it off. And once you start really learning about the process of writing and realizing like, hey, you always have to first just get a shitty draft down then, you know, but yeah, so it all, you know, the inner voice thing, something I'm, I'm constantly fascinated with and exploring and um, especially loved the way that it came out with Barbara, the, the actress Meredith Hagner, the way that she brought, because I think that in the scripts, if you were to read them, Barbara is so caustic and, and mean, um, but the way that Meredith brought that like sweet bitchiness to it in, in such a specific way that only she could do really elevated that character for me. By the way, Barbara, the name is named after my dog, Barbara, who's sitting beside me right now. But um, what kind of dog can we see the dog? Barbara, she's a mini schnauzer mutt that I found on the street 11 years ago. She has cancer, but she just keeps on living and she, you would never tell she has cancer. She acts Barbara, Barbara. <gasps> oh, she's so stinky. I can tell. She's actually weirdly, she doesn't smell like my other two dogs over here, Harvey and Nigel. <laughs> they are smelly, but Barbara it's looks a like a dirty fucking street rat. Like I remember the first night I brought her home and I was like, I don't even know if this is like for sure a dog. Like it could be a raccoon part like it could just it's just a creature that I found on the fucking street and then I was like she slept in my bed I fell in love with her and it's been 11 years now um <sighs> but yeah so Barbara because a lot of the times when I am writing if I'm writing alone it is such a painful process for me and I hate it so much that oftentimes I'll just you know talk aloud and so if Barbara the dog is in the room with me which she typically is it's like you know, I'm kind of pitching stuff out loud to Barbara and being like, she'll look at me and I'll be like, yeah, you're right. God, it's such a hack pitch. Like I should just fucking die. Um, Do you think it's painful because you're alone with that voice? I think, yes, I think it's painful because I'm alone with that voice and it prevents me from um, being able to like have the freedom to sort of explore ideas because I get so caught up in each criticism of like, one little idea and then it's like no that's so not good and then instead of just being like this free-flowing whereas you know in a tv a typical tv writer's room which is where i got my start as a writer it really is so much about the the group think socialization the talking the one person saying something leading to the next person like coming up with ideas that you would never come up with on your own because you are using all these different perspectives of all these different people who are pulling from their own life experiences. And you might have a bad pitch that then sparks something in another person's brain that then leads to something amazing. And it, there's something about the magic, like the, the, the way that that all happens. that's so romantic and fun to me that I really, you know, the, the TV writing writer's room specifically is just like my favorite job in the world. Um, but with Dummy, it was different because it w there was no writer's room. I wrote everything on my own. And it was, uh, you know, I, obviously there were moments of joy, but it's like the Dorothy Parker line. Um, I hate writing. I love having written. Like I really do. I, I, the act of writing is painful for me and I find ways to trick myself into doing it. But at the end of the day, I always procrastinate till the very last minute. You know, it's just what so many writers probably uh say and feel I'm, I'm so jealous of writers that I know that like like enjoy like love sitting down to write and it's their escape and it's their thing for me it's it's uh, it's painful but in a tv writer's room it's a totally different thing because you're just 
breaking stories, talking characters. And then once you go to write the script on that, you already know what the script is. It's like starting something from the very beginning all on your own because there are no boundaries. It's, it's like terrifying. It's just like this infinite space of, I better come up with something cool to fill this space with all on my own. And this, this started as a spec script that was going to be a longer series and... Um, kind of. It basically... So, like, I'm 35 now. When I was about to turn 30, so at the beginning of my career, I, I went to film school to be a director, um, graduated, started working as an assistant to a couple different directors, and, like, you know, I, I grew up in L.A., so I always knew I wanted to do something... I, it's not even that I always knew it's like, I didn't even realize there were other things to do in a way. Like I was always like, Oh, my mom's an actress. My dad's a photographer. I'll be something else, something in the business. Mm -hmm. And so as a kid, of course I wanted to be an actress. And then I, you know, sort of like went through that phase and the combination of like watching my mom as an actress get older and see the struggle of like what it means to live that life of like going out, on auditions and and how few parts there are just seeing all that as a teenager really had an impact and then also my mom made this really smart decision which i think was just her being like selfish and lazy but i love it and it's awesome basically i wanted to be like an actress as a kid like i was like i want to go on you know commercials and have an agent and do all this and she was like cody i have to drive myself to my own auditions like when you turn 16 you can do whatever the fuck you want once you have a car get an agent do whatever you want but by the time I was 16, I had taken, I went to this art high school. So I'd taken writing classes and directing classes. And by that time I realized, oh, I don't think specifically acting is, is the thing that I want to pursue. I was, you know, exploring what specifically I wanted to do as a storyteller. And it was the first time that I saw a TV writer's room like in person because I was working for a director who was directing a, a pilot and I saw the TV the, t the writer's room and I was like this feels like you know it sounds so cheesy but I was like this feels like home this is like what I want to do this is amazing so then I sort of transitioned and started specifically you know watching as many tv shows and breaking them down reading books about tv writing and of course this was a different time um it was only you know 10 to 15 years ago but even then it was so different, the landscape, like you were expected to write a spec pilot of an existing show as your sample. So you would write like a friend spec or whatever, you know, and that would be your sample to then be considered to be hired as a staff writer on other shows. But um, so I wrote like an Always Sunny in Philadelphia spec pilot back in the day. But now the standard is you write an original pilot. So this is a super long winded way of getting back to your original question, which is that I had a writing partner for the first like five years of my professional writing career and he's great and we're still totally friends. But as, as I was nearing 30, I was starting to be like, I don't feel like this is my voice anymore. Like, I feel like I want to start telling different stories. Um, we worked on some amazing shows together. I worked on a show called Wilfred, which was where I like learned how to write TV and was such an amazing experience. And that was with Brett, my old writing partner. And then we created this show called Deadbeat on Hulu. And we did that for three seasons. But by the end of that, I had sort of realized like, okay, I want to go off on my own and be a writer and specifically write female stories because I had this male writing partner. And I felt like a lot of times I was, uh, no fault of, of his whatsoever. It was just like, I would get, I was not telling the stories that were making me watch it and be like, oh, that's my voice. Um, so after... Uh, parting ways as writing partners my agents were like okay so you need a new spec sample now for staffing season because we can't just use even though like I had had my own show for three seasons it's still you needed a new, new, a new sample to represent your own voice and so this coincided with me just starting to date my now fiance Dan Harmon who is creator of community and co-creator of Rick and Morty <laughs> like sorry Barbara barking. Barbara Barbara come on um, you're so, doing great, Barbara. Barbara, you're killing it. Um, but I had just started dating him. So it was all these things kind of happened at the same time, but I had to write a new script. 
And I was really struggling to write on my own because I had been so accustomed to having a partner that it was just so scary and, and to be accountable to myself. And it was just, I was having such a tough time. And then also dating Dan, worrying about what he would think of me as a solo writer and wanting to impress him and feel validation because in my mind, I, you know, he is so prolific and successful and I'm not compared to him and all these things going on in my head. So basically that was sort of the, the origin of how Dummy came to be a spec pilot was that like, I, you know, used all the things that were really going on in my real life. And uh, in real life, when I started dating Dan, very early on in the relationship, we just had this conversation. It was like literally first, second date, we were just like, you know, talking about all of our past relationships, what had gone wrong, what we wanted to do better, what we were looking for. And we just made this sort of pact of like, let's be super fucking honest with each other about like everything early on. Like, let's right now get, tell each other our darkest secrets, like the sexual kinks and fetishes that we might not, you know, tell other people or ones that we do to whatever, but just like get it all out on the table. And one of the things that came out of that conversation was the fact that Dan had a sex doll. And I guess he had like, when I, when I, first started dating him, I, you know, he had a, he had a podcast for years and I guess he talked about it on the podcast, but I didn't know any of this. So he tells me this and I sort of just am like, that's, I, cool. Like I'm a sexually liberated, evolved woman. It's, you know, what, it's an inanimate object that you use to, I mean, the truth is I, I dramatized it for the show because it made it a little more uh, high stakes, but the truth is it, and I'm not betraying his his trust here because he talked about it on his podcast. But Dan has like a foot pantyhose fetish. So he had a mannequin leg that he would use and for, you know, self-pleasure purposes. And one of his dogs shoot up the mannequin leg. And so then he wound up finding this like discounted sex doll online and he ordered it like specifically for the feet. And so in real life, I don't think, I think he probably tried to have sex with it a couple of times, like in the, like the blow job and in the vagina, but like that wasn't really what he was using it for primarily. Um, but I did for the sake of the show, make it that they had actual sex. Cause I think that makes it a little more like terrifying and threatening for the character of Cody. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was, when Dan first tells me about it, I'm totally, I I'm like, that's cool. I don't think I have an issue with it. I honestly, I'm like, whatever, like I'm into really weird, I like really weird porn. We talk about what kind of taboo shit that we're into and we're just, we get on the same page. We also are like engaging in lots of role play. And that was my, both of our first time having a relationship with role play. Like I, in the past, hadn't had much experience. And while I was single for three years, I like had one random encounter where I like he was into daddy daughter role play. And I was like, I definitely watch a ton of porn like this. So I know I'm into it. And we like tried it. And I didn't like the guy as a potential life partner, but I did learn something about what I liked in bed from that experience. So that was something that like, you know, Dan and I talked about all these things in the beginning. Anyway, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. But <laughs> the doll came up. I thought I was cool with it. And then, you know, like six months into the relationship, like, now I'm spending more time in his house. We're really serious. I'm sleeping over all the time. And I find myself like thinking about her all the time, like the doll. And like in his mind, it's just an it. And he also like, when he first told me about it, he was like, by the way, if you're like weird about it, I can get rid of it. I don't need. And I was like, no, no. Like I was very much like, I don't want to, that would mean that I, that, that, that seems like an insecure, like terrible thing on my part to demand that. Did you know what um, kind of sex doll it was? Um, I don't think it was one of the main, like, cause I now because of the show, I have done a lot of research. It wasn't Silicon uh, Wives, which is one of the main ones. And it wasn't a real doll. I think it was some kind of knockoff cheaper one. Um, and so anyway, I, you know, I, the fact that I started thinking about her so much and humanizing her and comparing myself, not, I never, to this day, never saw that the doll's gone now. I won. She's when, gone. when did she get rid of him? When we were moving into our new house, it, it had been in the basement for a while. Like once we started, once I was spending so much time there, it wasn't really 
thing a thing anymore but um but then he eventually got rid of it because he was like i'm it's yeah i'm moving into the new house so um but but they are so these things are so hard to move like being on set barbara the doll was the like most diva of all of the actors on set not meredith the actress but the doll itself because moving them maneuvering them like you can't gain purchase on them like when you're trying to lift them they are like just dead weight with no center of gravity and so it really does boggle my mind and amaze me to these men who you know i've watched all these documentaries about men who have sex dolls in their lives and like the amount of work it takes to like change their clothing huge like we had to have like five dolls and an extra prop department person that we had to add because it was so much goings on to like get Barbara ready for every scene um I totally forget what the what the original question was that got on this doesn't matter it was all wonderful (laughs) um okay um but uh yeah Barbara in her voice Dan doll when you and Dan started dating and decided to have that open conversation, was that the first time you've had that dynamic in a relationship where you could talk about your uh, taboo interests? It was the first, yeah, like in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I'm I, I'm a very open, like bordering on like inappropriate at times type person who just like likes to I'm fascinated by lots of things that maybe are taboo so I like to talk about them and anyone who will join me in talking about them I will be very grateful and love to have that conversation um but with partners like I had one really long relationship in my 20s when I was like 21 to 28 basically I was in a relationship with an older guy and he was great and we're still friends and I learned a ton. But like when I started dating him, I did not know who I was. I did not know what I wanted. I, you know, and he was a fully grown person, like an adult. He was in his thirties. And so there was such an imbalance there. So I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted, like sexually, first of all, but like in all senses of the word. Um, but one thing that I will say that's like very striking to me now is that I grew up in a family where we are very much like, we're farters like we fart and like we do it open like there's no shame with that kind of stuff like you you know a fart is a funny thing it's something to behold and and have joy for it's like fun it's not it's not something that you hide so when I was in my my early 20s relationship that guy wasn't uh as open about that stuff so I remember like not not farting in front of him and him not farting in front of me and getting to a certain point where I was like okay, we've been together for like three years, like a long time now. Like, so I kind of broached the topic. I was like, look, how do you feel? Like, it's just a pitch, like feel free to like shoot it down. But like, how do you feel about like starting to introduce like farting and stuff into this, into this shit? And he was like, like, I love him. He's a great guy, but he was like, I mean, I'm not going to do it. You're free to do it. But like, I'm, I'm not going to like, he's not going like, of course, if a fart slips out, whatever. But he was like, I don't, think farts are funny I'm not gonna start parting and I was like really realized and I I know it sounds like silly but I really realized like that is a priority for me like that is something for me like to have a close relationship with someone I need to be able to joke and feel open about that kind of stuff so with Dan very early on I was like we farting we doing it and he weirdly he was married for like a year, very short marriage right before, like he was only married for a year. And then like a month later we started dating. So already it was like, we went to like preemptive couples therapy just cause I was like, this is clearly like a guy on the rebound and I'm going to get heartbroken. But it wasn't, it turned out five years later. But, um, but that is to say that he, in his marriage, they had a non-farting thing because one of their couple friends had advised them they were like they were both comedians and they were like we both both being comedians it's just too much if we like we have to keep some romance and some mystery so we don't like poop and fart in front of each other and so Dan and his ex-wife who's lovely and awesome um and I'm friendly with and I don't think she would mind me saying this but um they like didn't they did not fart in front of each other and like I don't think it was like bad I don't think he left that with like a bad or good experience it was just like what had happened right before so when I was like, let's go ahead and like 
get this party started. He was he was down. And I got to say, it's like a huge source of of fun in our house. And so I realized that, like, even though that sounds like such a ridiculous thing, it is something that I need just as much as I want to be able to tell Dan like, hey, I have this really dirty fantasy where, like, I want to be, you know, raped and, what, you know, things that are like, look, it, it's scary to say if you think you're going to be judged by someone, but if you know you're not going to be judged and you trust that person, then suddenly the world is like, you can create your own happiness. Um, so... Yeah, that that was I, this is definitely the first relationship where it's been like all out on the like just complete honesty about all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been really fun. I'm really I really recommend it. I love that. I'm. How did farting become such an intimate thing? Like you can have your asshole eaten out but I know. not fart it's, in front of somebody. I know it's really so strange. And like Anna Kendrick, um, so she doesn't think farts are funny and I'm like, farts are funny. And so for dummy, I'm like, we're friends. And like, I give her a hard time about, you know, whatever. We're, uh, she's amazing. But in the pilot, I wrote in the script, like Cody goes to the bathroom. She lets out a light fart flushes. And it was in the script. And on the day on set, Anna was like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, well, okay, I don't expect you to like, be able to fart on cue. Is that what you're saying? And she's like, no, like, I don't think parts are funny. I don't want to do this joke. And I was like, Anna, I hate to tell you this, but like, I'm adding it in post. And like, I'm going to make it even louder now. And so <laughs> I had so much fun with adding that fart in post. Um, and I think it's fucking funny. I do. I think farts are funny. Um, <laughs> when you were deciding to add, what does like the sound designer decide? Did you have like... A there bunch were some of options. Um, Monkeyland Audio, this guy Kelly, but his, the the part that he chose originally was just like the winner. And then like I maybe asked him to play me a few others just to see the options. And I was like, no, Kelly, you obviously nailed it the first time. That's the best part I've ever heard. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's light and fluffy. Like I wanted, I wanted a certain quality to it that he just captured just instinctively so it was really beautiful you went with a drier fart as opposed to a heavier one yeah it was more of like a like an like an open an open air kind of like a an opening and then but it's it, it's not uh there's not as much popping as something that's sort of got to emerge it's more of just like the asshole opens up and then it comes out and then that asshole closes and it's kind of there's an airiness to it brightness and how does a sound designer get these farts there's just a library of like millions of different screams farts uh shoes door creaking you know it's a whole and i mean these these people are amazing at their jobs just like the details and i remember one thing that i kept being annoyed at was like <laughs> i loved him so much he was the best but he kept doing for night scenes the crickets were like a little too loud and i'd be like no come on like enough with the crickets um but it's it's just it's so interesting it's whole and then the other really fascinating thing which was you know this was my first time show running completely like my own show and it's like I'm literally the leader of every step of the way so got to be in every single you know every single step of everything and my favorite new thing that like I didn't I had never really known about was loop group and you, you know what loop group is it's basically it's basically people that come in to do to record audio for example if there's a nightclub scene and you have a bunch of people dancing and talking but the your scene is basically about the main couple having their conversation when you're shooting that scene in real life in order to get the quality of the audio good enough none of the extras can be talking or dancing they're all just faking it and only the two main actors are talking so then the loop group comes in and they watch the video and they make up just they they make up stuff to make chatter, just like background chatter or like and they'll be like and, and there's a bunch of them. They come as a troupe and they kind of play off each other like improvisers. And it was just such there was they were it was so impressive and just such a unique, cool thing that, you know, I 
hadn't, I, I had heard the term loop group, obviously, but I'd never seen it in action and it was so impressive and cool. Does that imply that there is a loop group job opening of gassy people farting in front of a mic? That's different because that's Foley. Foley oh. is like, Foley is like making sounds like a fart sound, a creaking of a door, um, like the, the sound effects that are not human voices. Um, so I think a fart, a fart, I would be curious to know if most farts are like an actual person farting or more just like, I, I, that's a really great question, Heather Ann, because I don't <laughs> it's know. probably like, not a real person I, farting, I want but. to know if Anna's fart came from a real person or if it's like just a Foley artist creating the sound out of like a tin can with a rubber band or some shit, you know, like who knows, they're geniuses, they can do anything. And if it was like a real fart, just to know that your fart was chosen, that must I be would such be an so honor. I know it's like the thing that they say about like if you're on a laugh track that like then you live forever because like you're if you have like a loud laugh and it gets captured on a, la a laugh track and then it's on some show that you know that is Golden Girls and it's on a million times. If like I were the one that made Anna Kendrick's fart, and then I would be like, that would be like a huge honor. I wish I. Thinking back, I honestly am a little bit regretful that I didn't decide to do the fart myself and be like, look, this is my, this is like my little Afro Alfred Hitchcock moment. My little cameo is just this audio fart. I'm sure she would have been delighted. Yeah. And she wound up, you know what, even though she thinks farts aren't funny, she wound up still like, that's the best thing about Anna is that like, she's still so down for whatever. Like, even though personally she doesn't think farts are funny, like when I did it, she was like, all right, that's funny. Like she's totally down and so cool and laid back and, you know. I love that. Yeah. So how was being a showrunner for the first time? What was that learning process like? Was it exciting? Was it scary? Was it? I had kind of, so when I did Deadbeat at Hulu, which was the show I did for three seasons with my old writing partner, Brett Connor, it was weird. It was at the very beginning of Hulu, kind of like, the very beginning of Quibi, it was like, you know, one of the first original programming things that they were making. Um, and so the, it was this weird thing where like the word showrunner was never really said, but like we, it was our, we had been staff writers. So going from that to showrunner would be this huge leap. So they brought on this guy who was going to direct all the episodes, but also be an executive producer. Little did we know, like, technically he was the showrunner. No one just used the word. So, like, he did have more power than us at the end of the, of the day. So this was my first time literally being the one with all the power in the end who, like, has the last word, which was very cool. Um, but I've been in so many situations of being, like, a co-executive producer or being, you know, doing the job of, of showrunning but just, like, not having that final say. But so that, thank God I had that because I would have, ne I needed all that training of how to manage things and the way production runs and the way that the, the order of things, if, if you were not, there's no way you could just blindly go into that job and be like, all right, I'm the showrunner. Like you need to have that training of working your way up as a writer producer to know that this is the way things sort of work. So I already had that basic knowledge, but um, then getting to show around my own show was literally like a dream it was 18 an 18 day shoot and every day on the way to work I was like the happiest I'd ever been in my whole entire life I was like the, I felt so fulfilled you know all that the inner critic the voice that tells you you're not good enough like I finally felt like oh I found something that I feel like I'm good at like I felt like I was good at leading and it was such a great group of people I mean you know I'm bragging about myself but the truth is I really just got lucky by having surrounding myself with this incredible team of people, mostly women, because I was like, I'm making this show that's very much about being a woman. And so I definitely want as many people working on it, department heads, et cetera, to be women. And it was that, which was really cool, but it's just really funny because I've been thinking lately just, you know, with everything going on in the world and the revolution and all these amazing things that are happening, I'm like, oh God, like I was so proud a couple months ago to be like, I had all so many women in my crew and now I'm like, yeah, they were all white women, like not good enough. You know, like we're all learning and it's a great, like have being able to 
have the privilege to have that experience and then be like, okay, fuck, I need to do better next time. If I get, if I'm lucky enough to get it next time, I will need to do better at that, which like the, the industry has, has gone through so many, it just in the 10 or 10 ish years, I've been a writer. Like I've been in rooms where I was the only woman at all. Um, and now it's like very, you know, way more equal between men and women, but still there's this just huge, huge lack of, of inclusivity, diversity, whatever the, I, there's also all now I'm feeling like getting into these conversations where I'm like, I was using the word BIPOC. And then my friend was like, Cody, that word, like my black friend was kind of being like, no one that black, BIPOC's not there. And I was like, but I read me and white supremacy. And I thought that was the word. And like, everything's evolving so fast. And it's an amazing time. And I'm embracing trying to do my best and be the best ally slash then I read ally is no longer now accomplice is supposed to be the word that you use mm. and I'm like I'm just I'm just trying to keep up and do the best I can and it's feeling exciting to be a part of trying to make things better for the first time yeah. um but yeah I mean that's great that you're doing the work I know not a lot of people are even bothering to do the work. And I mean, I, 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 of my group of friends who are writers and who are mostly white, like we, I feel like everyone, I'm so like happy and, and inspired to see that everyone really is doing the work and that's so fucking cool. But yeah, like I was thinking back to just my career and the fact that so tragic, but um, about a month ago, one of my friends, killed herself and uh she was this, thank you she was this incredibly gifted and uh, just one of the most amazing writers and people i've ever worked with her name is jazz waters and i was thinking about after her death and just you know mourning and thinking about her i was thinking i think she was the only black writer i've ever worked with in my in all the rooms i've been in there was one other woman who was amazing leanne bowen but she was like um, a consulting producer. So it was only a couple days a week, but jazz was the only writer, like of all the writer I've worked on so many different shows and so many different people. And it's like, that's, that's not right. Like that's fucked. So after that happened, I was like, what, how do we change? What do we do? This is so systemic, but like, what can I do? What, what can I do? So I talked to my managers and they are awesome. Um, and we're totally down to have this conversation. And I was like, how would you feel? You know, I don't have a huge um, like social media presence, but I have, you know, some followers on Instagram. And I know a lot of them are fans of Dan's who are fans of his because they want to be writers. So they're fans of mine now. So what if I posted a thing that was like a call out to, I use the word BIPOC, but I wish I had used a different word, but now I don't even know what the right word, but I was like, any uh, writers of color that um, are currently up unrepresented, like reach out to me and I will help you like in whatever way I can, which for me was like, I can help my managers who don't represent that many people of color help make introductions. And so I wound up getting like, I think over 80 submissions of scripts and now have been reading them myself, found some amazing writers that I'm like, oh my God, if I ever have the opportunity to have a room again, like I know some of these people I'll want to hire. And they've, a lot of them have, have now started getting represented by my managers. Like, you know, there's a lot of people, so not every, it didn't work out for everyone, but like it was something that at least I got to see my action. And, you know, maybe that's selfish and terrible to say, but it was, it did give me like encouragement to keep going. Cause I was like, Oh, I can see me trying to make an action to help something and seeing there be an actual concept, like a good effect of that um, was really like satisfying. Yeah. That feels, but then I'm like, Oh, I'm being such a white savior. Like I'm a piece of shit. Fuck me. Like, you know, it's just a constant. It's just, I, I feel like it's what it's, it's what all of my white girlfriends right now are kind of, we're all, talking about is just this you know we need to start doing the work we need to fix things mm -hmm. um, that is that is something I also really loved in dummy was the self-awareness of writing this feminist buddy comedy and the, the scene about the Bechdel test and that all was just 
very funny. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but yeah, I enjoyed that self-awareness. Thank you very much. And that's a conversation. Yeah. With, you know, with dirty girl specifically, I've been trying to amplify black voices the past few weeks. And if I look back on the few seasons that we've done, I don't think, I think it is pretty white. You know, there definitely is some, uh, women of color in there, but it is mostly white. And I, I too want to do better. And yeah. I and I think that that's, I think that that's what's beautiful about that moment, about this moment for us is the realizing this privilege that we have and saying like, okay, now we're going to, we're going to do something about it with this privilege. And it's like, it's what we have to do. And I think it's exciting for every person in their own individual way to like work toward that and have this common goal of like a, better world a, a, a world without white supremacy mm-hmm. which seems like worlds away but I do feel like now more than ever in my lifetime it is finally feeling like something is for real shifting yeah it feels like I don't know I I had a Facebook memory the other day that three years ago my status was Black Lives Matter and yeah. I don't even remember what was happening that made me post that three years yeah. ago. Yeah. And it, it's a little crazy to me that this conversation is happening again, And but it feels like it's being heard in a way. It, yeah, something. it feels different. I like, I completely understand that it's like, even, I mean, I, this is like, I don't want to admit this, but I watch Law & Order SVU and I know that that's, it's terrible to watch because it literally is all the things it glorifies police violence and like, like, police officers that like break the rules but are heroes and are doing it for the right reason and it criminalizes black and brown people it's like the worst thing ever but even I was watching a rerun the other day and it was a whole black lives matter thing and it's from years ago and it's like yeah this has been going on for a long time and no one has taken it seriously but this is the first time that it really does feel like white people are taking it seriously and I don't know if it is a a combination of we were all in quarantine and then this happened and it was like, okay, it took that, it took us having this kind of crisis of like isolation and all of the stuff that everyone sort of went through in quarantine that combined with like, okay, here's some hard truths that we now need to like accept and act upon. And then everyone, I don't know, it's, it just feels different this time. And I, I I'm hopeful. Yeah. I've heard a couple, I think, it was Code Switch on NPR has an episode called Why Now, White People? <laughs> and it does talk about the pandemic and that having an effect on. Yeah. Which is interesting. But yeah. If it takes a fucking pandemic, I guess. Yeah. It, uh, yay. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> crazy, crazy times. Crazy, crazy times. times. What is uh, shifting gears a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. Okay, it's, shift it. What is, I feel like you don't get embarrassed easily. I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't know you very well, but if I had to, yes. What is a moment where you've done something gross, embarrassing, makes you self-conscious? I mean, you know, I've shit my pants a couple times. I think A couple times? I mean, maybe, maybe two to three times. I can remember one specifically that was like the one that got me like the one where I was like, Oh, this, this, this feels like a, an embarrassing thing. But that, but that's the thing about for me, as soon as I share that embarrassing thing that feels shameful, as soon as I share it, it alleviates the, the painfulness of the shame. Like sunlight is the best disinfectant type of thing where like, I remember it was like I was driving, I was a teenager and I was, I was wearing for some reason, it was like, I thought it was cool or it was a fad to wear like fruit of the loom little boys underwear that were like kind of like hipster, like they're kind of like little shorts. And I was wearing those with a skirt and I was driving between my mom's house and my dad's house in traffic. And it was like, there was a lot of traffic. And I was at a certain point I was on the 405 and I was like, God, I got to take a shit. And I was like, no, but I can, I can totally make it back to the Valley. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. And it was like, 
I mean, sweat it, just like, you know, classic shitting your pants experience where you're just like battling with like, and I, I was like, I can just pull over to a gas station, but like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to like get out and get into the thing. I don't, I don't know. Like the, my best bet is to just go home and, and just, and then like a block away from home, it just came out. But because I was wearing these like boy short underwear, it kind of like, it was just such a bundle that I was sitting on. It was just cause it was, it was not solid. So it was just like a just a loose bundle of diarrhea that I was sitting on. And I was just like, Oh God. And then I came home and I immediately like took them off before going inside and like wrap them up and threw them and put them in a bag and threw them in the dumpster outside. But like, I immediately told my father and then suddenly it wasn't, it was no longer like the shame was just more, Oh God, that, that, that happened, but it wasn't something that I felt, uh, there haven't been like, I feel like the moments that I replay in my head late at night are more things of like, that I can't even right now identify a specific one where, but it's more things that singe in my mind in the trauma zone of like, I misunderstood someone and said the wrong thing back. Or mm-hmm. I thought someone was, you know, bad version. I thought someone was waving at me and I waved back and then they were waving at the person behind me. But it's like those little tiny social interactions that I think traumatize me the most and stick in my brain the most. One, one story from my youth that I do think was like, I didn't at the time, I didn't tell anyone. And then later I have told people and now it's funny and not traumatic. But when I was a kid, I was probably like seven or eight. It was one of the, it was basically the last family trip we went on as a family before my parents divorced. And it was like a road trip. My dad had this big suburban and he, when we go on road trips, he would put all the seats back and all the seats down in the back. So I would make like a big bed. My sister would sit in the middle row, my mom and dad in the front. And then I would have just like this bed in the back with no seat belts. And I would just like get cozy and sleep and do whatever I wanted. I was really into Phantom of the Opera. I was really into musicals. So I was listening to Phantom of the Opera on my like cassette player or I don't, yeah, I think it was before CDs. And I remember being like super turned on by the like dynamic between the Phantom and Christine. And it was kind of rapey. And there was something about it that was like turning me on. And I was in the back and no one was looking at me and we're just driving. And I was under all these covers and I was like, no one's gonna know and I was like seven so I was like masturbating to the song and to him being like sing for me and I was masturbating and then all of a sudden wham we fucking hit a deer we get into like I don't know I'm just I'm just I'm masturbating I don't know what's going on I'm just masturbating to phantom minding my own business under the covers and then all of a sudden like a car accident basically happens and I look up and a deer it was less that we hit the deer more that the deer like ran into the side of our, our car and we, uh, the car was totaled. We pulled over and we got out of the car and I remember just being like, first things first, does any, did anyone catch me masturbating? Does anyone know that I was masturbating? <laughs> and then just like in some weird way, I guess in my head, I'm like watching this deer die on the pavement and it somehow weirdly mixed like sex and death. Maybe like maybe this is me totally just over <laughs> over like philosophizing and, and trying to to make something more than what it is. But in my head, I guess I was like, oh, it's interesting that that happened. And there, it was a it was a trauma because I was scared of being caught for the sex thing. But then this other thing happened that was so intense and almost like supernatural feeling of just it was just such a strange experience. And so that I did not tell my parents that I had been masturbating. <laughs> I guess part of me was like, did I cause that? I, I don't think so. Cause I was not religious. So it wasn't, there was never a part of me that was like, did I cause that? It was more just like, whoa, weird timing. Um, I mean, in college, I, I didn't orgasm until uh, I was 22. What? Yeah. Uh, which is so sad. Just proves that like we need pleasure centered sex ed. Yeah. Um, but, so wait, can I can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did you as a kid did you like explore your body and masturbate but you just never got to the point of knowing how to get yourself to climax? Yeah, it was like my thing is I played The Sims and whenever The Sims woohooed, I was like, oh my god, mm, yeah. Um 
and there were things that I didn't even know was masturbating. Like I just like rubbing on something. Yeah. 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 Um, and then in high school, I, you know, was sexually active uh, a little bit and I was having sex and the sex felt good, but I didn't even know I was supposed to climax. Like that wasn't taught. Cosmopolitan just taught me how to please your man and how to suck a dick good and what to do if your pussy smells awful. And that's so embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Teen Vogue now is like amazing. I know. Yeah. Amazing. No, but it is really fascinating that you say that because I, I, like as a kid, I, I masturbated from a really young age and I remember so clearly, like I, I've told this on another podcast, so I feel like a jerk re-describing it, but whatever. I, there's this book called Where Did I Come From? That's like an illustrated kids book that ex- explains sex and reproduction. I think kids. I had that book. And it was like my favorite book and I read it all the time. And I have these very vivid memories of like my parents had a, um, had like jacuzzi jets in our bathtub and I would like park myself on the jacuzzi jet at like five years old, turning to the page where it's like, when the dad and the mom love each other so much that they want to get as close as possible, they hug until, and like they show, like you see a penis, like you, and I was like, that was my original porn. I was like masturbating yeah. to this. And now it's a little funny because Dan, my fiance, has somewhat of a similar body type to the dad. And where did I come from? <laughs> That's so beautiful for a circle. Yeah. But yeah, and my friends and I used to have like, we used to do things where we would be like, this was more like fifth grade, maybe we would all take a stuffed animal or a pillow and go to different parts of the room for privacy with the lights off. And we would all hump our thing until like whoever came first, we weren't calling it that. It was just like, we didn't have words for it. It was just like this thing that we did. But it was like whoever finished first was like, okay, I finished. Like I, I won. think I, I think I must. You may not have been the only person to do this, but I interviewed somebody else for this podcast that told me about in the fifth grade their pillow humping sleepover or stuffed animal humping sleepovers, and that would be crazy if it was like one. Oh of my god! What if it was friends. the same? What if it, that would be still? <laughs> I, I that would be amazing, but also it would be amazing if if it's not the case because I do feel like it is so much more common. Like we make jokes and there's so many tropes in media about like young boys jerking off but like other than book smart I've never really seen female masturbation as a you know and obviously it's like well yeah you have to handle it in a way where it's not actually pornographic because that's awful and whatever but just Mm -hmm. the idea that like kids experiment with their bodies and that's a normal thing and you know and I have a niece and a nephew and it's just like it's so interesting to watch like you know, they're at certain ages where like they're at the dinner table and suddenly like the, my nephew will like put his hands down and and just being able to be like how to sex positively be like, there are times for that. And that's, you do that when you're alone in your room and, you know, and like just thinking about all of that both like excites and terrifies me about one day having kids. If I do, it's just like wanting to navigate that in a way where I never give them any more shame. And I feel like my parents did a really good job of that. Like I never felt shamed about anything, but like, I also never felt like I got, I never got like caught masturbating, mm-hmm. you know, I never had that moment, but like, I used to, whenever, like when I was a teenager, whenever my parents would like, I remember my dad had a huge collection. Both my parents had porn, like VHS, VHS porns at each of their separate houses. But my dad had a pretty massive collection. And I remember I would, whenever he was going out, like you know, I was a teenager. He wasn't leaving me for that long at a time. It'd be like, I'm going out to pick up our dinner and I'll be back in 15 minutes. And I would like run to the VHS thing, put the thing on, masturbate, and then like rewind it to the time code to make sure that he wouldn't know and like put it back and like just sweating by the time he got back and be like, hey, okay. (laughs) But it's so interesting with like the internet now because like my, a good friend of mine has a, a son and he was saying that the other day he like, when like the son is old enough that he has access to the computer, but like it has, or like an iPad that it has like settings on it. That's supposed to, you know, block porn and shit like that. But he, the dad, my friend looked at the kids, um, Google history and he had looked up 
Vachina. He spelled it V A C H U N A, Vachina. Oh. <laughs> it's so precious. Yes. I know. Vachina. So yeah. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I feel like I interrupted you and you were going to say something more about you didn't. So the first time that you came, that you climax was 22. Yeah. I don't remember. What was that relevant? <laughs> we were talking about, fuck, we were talking about, I mean, you were just saying that like you kind of were coming into your own then maybe more. That maybe oh, I remember. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had realized maybe when I was 21 that I never came before. And I was kind of embarrassed because I had had sex with like kind of a lot of people and never actually climaxed. And how did you realize it? How did you know that you um, hadn't? My friends were talking about coming and climaxes. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think it ever actually happened to me. Wow. So my friend was, you know, I was texting my friend and she was giving me pointers like, okay, keep keep your vibrator on your clit and just keep it there and like yeah. X, Y, Z. And I was concentrating so hard and I was like starting to get, you know, starting to get there. And then an earthquake happened. No, that's crazy. That's like my fucking fear story. That's yeah. crazy. And I threw my dildo and that was the first earthquake I ever felt. And, uh, <laughs> still every year around this time of year, Facebook will remind me, like seven years ago, you made your Facebook status. Oh my God, an earthquake. Oh my God. And that's the time. Okay. So can I ask you, have, have since then, have you, have yes. you orgasmed? Yes. And, and what, how, what, when the very first time, what, like, what were your takeaways and what were like, what, what was, what made it finally happen? And I don't know, tell me the, the love story. Yeah. I mean, the first time was just this gross guy in college that was a two-night stand and it was just like for the first time him focusing on me in a certain way that I don't know I sex for me up until that point was very self-conscious and very performative like, performative that, yeah and you know thank you cosmopolitan for yes. helping ingrain that in me yes and uh yeah. And right now I'm in my late twenties now. And it's the first time I've ever had a partner that asks me, what do you want? And yeah. does, do you prefer this or that? And yeah, it just makes me sad for younger version of me that didn't know that was a possibility and yeah. had such bad sex with such shitty people for so long. Can I ask you this? So that's really interesting to me because like for me, obviously my very first orgasms were on my own. And even now, like I, I mean, with my current partner, yeah, I do come from sex with him, but it's usually, I'm also using my hand. Like I've rarely just had like an, I don't even, I don't know that I for sure have had one where it's just with so I guess my question to you is like it's so interesting that your first ever was with someone and then mm -hmm. were you able to after that make yourself come yeah and I think it was I changed up like the the first vibrator I ever had was just a piece of shit because everything else scared me and then I got like a nice like crazy guy uh which I still love still have and then I realized like the clitoris is where you have to focus. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could have people tell me that, but yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's just been, I, I don't know. I guess I had to experience it to realize what it was. And then I could learn how to do it for myself. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting, we're talking about that book. Uh, where did I come from when they're, I remember so clearly the way that they describe an orgasm is that it's this build inside of you and it's, it builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up until it finally releases. And that it kind of in a way is like a sneeze, like the sen sensation of a sneeze. And now this is the weirdest thing. When I get super turned on, I sneeze. Like when I, so it's funny because Dan and I do a lot of role play and I happen to be into like role play where I'm either like 
passed out and being molested and taken advantage of or like just I like to I mean there's like the joke and dummy of like sexy autopsy like I'm into I'm into being like objectified in bed and just being like you know and so part of it is like I'll pretend to be like oh I'm I'm sleeping or I'm like drugged so Mm -hmm. part of the role play is me having to be completely still while like Dan does stuff to me Mm-hmm. And when I get like super turned on, it's so hard because I have to have to stifle the sneeze. And it's like, it makes it so much more intense because it's like, you know, when you're in class and like you, you and your friend pass a note back and forth and you start laughing, but then the teacher looks and you know, you can't laugh anymore. And then it makes you have to laugh so much more than you ever would have to laugh. That's what it feels like to like have when I'm in that position where I'm like I I'm so turned on and I'm about to come and I'm I'm gonna sneeze but I have to like hold in this sneeze so bad and then I come really hard and my like I will twitch when um, you does yeah. it ever time out at the same time like a sneeze and a come yes it sometimes does but it usually is more like as I'm getting horny it's like if I'm watching porn it'll be like I start watching it and I'll know I'm ready to like turn my vibrator on when like my first sneeze comes and I'm like <laughs> all right it's time that's so funny um i gotta get this book what's it called dan the uh where did i come from where did i come from yeah yeah it's so good (laughs) they also interestingly um when i was in the kidding writer's room the show that jim carrey show and that's where i work with jazz waters the incredible writer who passed away that i was telling you about but i was telling the room about that book and we were talking about it and um we started Googling it. Cause I was like, I got to order it again. Like I don't have my copy and there's a, there's an African-American version and we ordered it for the room and jazz and I were like looking and comparing it. And it's like, literally they look the exact same, except I'm not kidding. I know this sounds crazy. I, the dad, the dad's dick is a little bigger. <laughs> the dad's dick, but otherwise they look the same. They have the same body, but just brown, one is brown and one is flesh colored. But the, di- the dad is a little more hair. The black dad has a little more hair and a little bit of a bigger dick. So I need both copies. You need both. You need both. Yes, they're great. What a great Um, takeaway. Yeah, they're fantastic. Well, Cody Heller, what a pleasure. (laughs) Such a pleasure meeting you. I feel like, wait, you live in LA, right? I do, yeah. Like maybe once this is all over, we can be friends in real life. I would love that. Let's be growth together. I really, I really want that. <laughs> um, any, any last words about dummy, um, about quibby, about embracing who you are, about... I will just, I will just say that, you know, quibby, you know, uh, I don't know if you're aware, it's been getting a lot of, people are making fun of quibby, the platform, a lot all over the internet it's become just like this big joke and whatever people you know people can do whatever they want I will say I am proud of the show I made I really do think it's cool and I like it I hope other people think that but it it, you know not a lot of people are there's not that many people who have Quibi yet because it's so new so I encourage anyone who's interested to check out my show Dummy it is a monthly subscription and I will make this offer to any of your fans listening to this podcast. If you would like to watch dummy, but you do not have the means to do so right now in this current situation, if you DM me, um, my, my Instagram is normal Heller, like normal, like a normal person, normal Heller. Um, if you DM me, I will Venmo you send me your Venmo and I'll Venmo you one month's subscription to Quibi so you can check out my show Dummy. There are also a lot of other great shows on Quibi. I know it's getting shat upon left and right, but um, I will say that like I had a great experience making it and I don't think I would be able to make it anywhere else. And Jeffrey Katzenberg gave me the artistic freedom to be able to make this weird fucking crazy thing. And I'm really grateful and I'm really grateful to everybody who worked on it. Such an amazing group of mostly women but some very cool dudes too not enough people of color next if there's another season or whatever else I do next that will be the first thing to change um but uh I I hope people if they watch the show that they like it and if they don't that's okay too but um I wish peace and and love and kindness to everyone right now going through everything and uh um you know masturbate 
when you when you need to sneeze when you got to um love it i will say also if you're a fan of dirty girl we have told stories about women peeing in people's mouths and people shitting in the shower and all that good stuff. yeah i mean i was you'll uh, love dummy well i was gonna ask you if i i did listen to a couple episodes of your show and i love it but i didn't listen to all of it because i didn't have time i just you know i just found out about it and i love it and now i'm going to go back and listen to all of the episodes but I'm curious, was there a lot of crossover with like stuff that I revealed with uh, other guests of yours? Like, was there a lot of yes. stuff where it, so it's like all the same shit, like everyone, it's we're great. all talking about the same stuff. Is mm-hmm. it good or is it like, oh, I was a boring guest because I said a lot of stuff that other people have already said? Oh, no, you you were just like two years ago when Ari suggested you and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get her, but I got to get her. It make yeah. It makes perfect sense. (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate being on Dirty Girl, being a dirty girl with you. Thanks for coming on Dirty Girl. Um, Stay safe and wear a mask. Yeah, you too, Heather Ann. (laughs) Thank you to Cody Heller for spending time with us this week. Cody, I actually forgot to tell you that I have a fan of the opera tattoo on my ribs, so your deer story was just extra special. Oh yeah, and everyone else, you can binge Dummy on Quibi now. I highly recommend. Dirty Girl is produced by me, Heather Ann Gottlieb, along with Cameron Taggy, Tristan Bankston, and Alex Salem. We are distributed by the Hoo Ha Ha Podcast Network. Our logo was designed by Kevin Laughlin. 